0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it, enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Nicole Desain, founder and chief experience design officer at Talent Imperative. Over the course of her 19-year human resources career, Nicole has worked with companies like Accenture, Comcast, Mercedes-Benz, Cisco, Uniqlo, and Walgreens. After she discovered design thinking while collaborating on a client project, Nicole became a student of the method and got certified by IDOU and Luluma Institute. She is a CESP, S-E-S-P, lecturer at Northwestern University's Master's in Learning and Organizational Change program, which explores how design thinking might be applied to innovation in organizational effectiveness. Nicole has been a guest lecturer at the Kellogg School of Management and at DePaul University's Master's in Human Resources program. Nicole runs her own podcast. Talent Tales, where she features leaders who have pioneered design thinking in the field of human resources. She's currently conducting research for her first book, which will focus on applying design thinking to the field of HR. This is a great conversation. Uh, Design thinking, if you aren't aware of it, is really a a great method to solve complex problems. And in this conversation, Nicole defines what design thinking is. She walks through the steps and and how to think through each step in detail. And then she talks about the benefits of using the process, the best practices for using the process, and we just have a lot of fun exploring the topic in general. For anyone who likes problem solving, who has problems to solve, who is creative or wants to be more creative, this is the conversation for you. I hope you enjoy it. Here is Nicole Desain. Welcome to People Business, Nicole Desain. Very excited to have you on the show. I know you and I have spent time before talking about people strategy and employee experience and design. And I'm excited to have you on and actually explore it here in a recorded format.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So I'd just like to kind of start at the beginning and just establish you know, who you are and where you come from. So what is talent imperative and, and what do you do?
1: Yeah, we are an employee experience design consultancy, and so we help organizations to become more people-centric, in a sense. So that ranges from consulting to design capability building for human resources to leadership enablement. Right now, hot topics are, you know, redesign of how work gets done and integrating DEI. And... How did
0: you come to this work? Like what what drew you to this?
1: So my career, my entire career has been in talent. I've been both in-house as well as a former Accenture consultant and now an entrepreneur. So talent has always been what I've been advising internally and externally on. So six years ago, I discovered design thinking on a talent acquisition project with a client. And since then, I've become a student of design thinking of the method and belief in its power for our function, for human resources, and how we can become a more human-centric function.
0: And and this is going to be an interesting conversation. I I always like these conversations, but especially because of another conversation I've had. So I was interviewing Claire Hayter, who is CEO of two companies, Wonder and Pattern, And we were talking about the future of work, and she was talking about how the future of work and really the future of of human resources, of the people function, is centered around employee experience and design thinking. And it was interesting. We we got into it. It was only a, a small part of our conversation, but it's something that I've thought a lot about since. And I wanted to bring you on to really explore design thinking and what it is, because I think it's a buzzword that people have heard of. They may have even heard of the steps, but I don't know that anybody, not anybody, obviously some people do, but there are many people out there who don't know how to harness it, when to harness it, you know, what that work would actually look like. So I guess just to start out, what is design thinking? How do you describe design thinking to somebody who doesn't know what you're talking about?
1: So the definition I use is that design thinking is a set of human-centered methods and mindsets used for complex problem solving and surfacing innovation so that's sort of the one sentence uh, description i use and
0: is this any problem or complex there... problem
1: so we use design thinking when we want to tackle what's called wicked or complex problems so if you have a very simple decision process or project like implementing a um, technology solution, for example. It's a fairly straightforward process. You don't need to apply design thinking. Design thinking really shines when we don't know the answers and there's so many things going on. And so the future work or the transition to hybrid right now is the perfect example. It really lends itself to things where the playbooks we have used in the past need to be completely reimagined because nobody has the answers. So that's where it really shines. So that's where where you would apply design thinking.
0: So I like the technology analogy because it's like the you want the companies who built the technology to use design thinking to build the best user-centric technology. But as you are evaluating which Three companies. Which of the three companies you're looking at might be the right fit for your business? You're making a fairly straightforward decision there.
1: Yeah, I mean, yes and no, because it could be much more complex. A much more complex analysis that led you to these three people or these three companies. But then, I mean, when you implement the technology in your organization, right? It's, it's a fairly straightforward process. Most technology companies these have sort of a out of the box. You know, approach. I guess another example would be maybe how to plan an event or something like that, right? So there's very like straightforward processes, maybe, and programs. And you would just make things more complex and timely by using a human-centered design approach. But again, where they really shine is when we don't know the answers.
0: Okay. And so what is the process for design thinking then?
1: Yeah, so there's various ways to break it down. You know, IDEA is popularized in Stanford East School, sort of a five-step process. I've sort of simplified it a little bit to three steps. Again, I try to simplify the method for human resources practitioners because we are not designers. So sometimes it it can seem overwhelming and overly complex. So I've tried to simplify the steps. And so the three steps really are discover, Ideate and solution. So, in the discovery phase, we're sort of taking, I always call it a Sherlock Holmes approach for those Sherlock Holmes fans out there, like myself, right? Where you're literally.
0: I (laughs) am one as well.
1: Yeah, like a detective. It's detective work, right? So, you want to try to take out your preconceived notion as the HR expert and really sort of put yourself in the shoes of the user you're designing for, in our case, the employees or the leaders, right? And really trying to find clues that can give you answers around the problem you're trying to solve. And it's a qualitative method. So we use, for example, research interviews, we use journey maps. So there's a series of methods that you can apply in this phase, right? But the the goal is to be curious and to learn more. Uh, I like to complement this with quantitative data. Uh, So data from your systems, HRS systems, from your employee surveys and things like that, right? So to pull in people analytics to, to complement this qualitative research phase. And then from there, once we've sort of have a hypotheses and have identified certain themes, then we can decide, okay, what is really the problem we are trying to solve? And use that as a jumping off point. And we use how might we often to reframe a problem into an opportunity. And then we use that to ideate. And most people associate ideation, brainstorming, things like that with design thinking. It's really only one step in the process. And once we've come up you know, with many ideas, then we converge to some of the best ideas, we create concepts, and then we move to the last phase. And that's a phase that's very new, usually to HR practitioners, which is the solutioning phase, which includes prototyping and testing. And prototypes are not the same as pilots. And yes, you can prototype a service and an experience. And that's usually where it's a little bit, the transfer is a little harder for people. So I can dive into each of these a little bit more, but just wanted to give the higher level.
0: Yeah, I almost interrupted you at the beginning. And I'm glad I didn't because I wanted you to get through the whole thing. But I, I do have questions. So let's start back at the beginning there. Because you had said you do all this research and then you define what the problem really is and that's interesting. So I imagine I mean you have to come to this with a problem. You you wouldn't be doing this work if you didn't have some kind of problem from the very beginning. But yet there's a point in which you reassess the problem and redefine the problem. Can you just talk to how to how that works and and what that process looks like and why you do that?
1: Yeah. And you know, there's a saying in design thinking that you know, we, we want to stay in the problem space longer than what feels natural. And sometimes when we're in a business environment, we're not rewarded and taught to do that, right? Because we're taught and rewarded to solution, right? And solve a problem quickly and not to kind of linger and really marinate in what the, the problem is. So to your point, so it's a little about unlearning and relearning of how we approach the space. And to your point, yes, we are going in with some sort of, a, I would call maybe hypotheses or some area where either there is a pain point that has been voiced by leadership or maybe from employee engagement data, right? So we know maybe there's an area, a broad area, that's a pain point, right? That could be in, in recruiting a certain workforce, that could be in creating more inclusive culture or right, or sort of like a broad topic. But then sometimes we tend to assume we know what the actual problem is. And that comes from, you know, us again in our little ivory towers thinking we know what our employees think. And more often than not, believe it or not, when I go through these activities with HR teams, they say to me, this is the first time I've actually talked and interviewed an employee about this. So think about that right? So we we think we know, but we don't. And we only know till we reach out and we go through all these research activities. And then we reframe the problem. And, and to your point, and, and so I laid out this very linear pro- uh, process. And that's the other thing in design thinking. It's sort of, it goes in loops because it's totally okay. It's iterative, right? It's totally okay to say, this is what I think the problem is, but let me get some more data. And I'm okay with being wrong. That's actually great in design thinking. There's a saying, fail forward, right? So it's not, I don't need to prove myself right. Uh, it's okay to prove myself wrong with more data. And then it's okay to go back. So it's a very forgiving process too. Then I can go back and revisit. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does. It's, I'm trying to think in my head, I've had somebody on here say it a different way. its It's not about who's right, it's about what's right. Yeah. And letting go of, your ego to get to the right answer regardless of whether you had the brilliant idea right away or not
1: yeah and that's really a great way to put it and that really applies to all the steps in design thinking it's sort of a mindset that really humbles you in a way and really teaches you you to take your ego out of it especially if you've had a you know i've had a fairly long career in talent at a certain point. You kind of maybe get a little cocky and think you've seen it all, know it all, right? So it's it can be very humbling, and I've seen actually practitioners. Let's say you know we wanted to redesign a comp and ban actually in your area a comp and ban strategy, and then you know a comp and ban specialists going out and interviewing employees and hearing from them why certain maybe comp and ban strategies don't work or the communication. It can be kind of. Um, hurtful initially right to hear this because you think you've did everything right and you believe in the program and then you get this feedback so there's this moment that's very humbling where you really need to take a step back and and try not to take it seriously or personally what is what is being said and really sort of pull yourself back as almost like an observer and again a detective right and take the input and use it as a data point and that can be hard when it's literally what you do that it can it can feel like initially that you're being criticized or what you do is being criticized, whereas people just give feedback, right? So there's always yeah. this, that that's this careful facilitation that then the facilitator needs to do to help sort of bridge that, those feelings. Because there's a lot of emotions that come up, especially initially when people are not used to the method and a lot of things are being dredged up that have not been heard before.
0: I was just thinking like, you know, you say, well, you you know, they take it like criticism and it's really feedback. It might be criticism
1: yeah, (laughs) and it
0: might be well-deserved, right? right. I mean, I've, I've certainly done things in my life thinking they were great. And then somebody told me about what a jerk I was and criticized me or, you know, how I did something totally wrong. And I was like, oh man, that's embarrassing. Right. But you're not going to get better if you don't embrace that stuff. Mm
1: -hmm, mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, call it feedback, call it criticism, call it whatever you want. You you have to be able to, to lean into that.
1: I call it data. I like to really call it data in the design thinking context because it removes yourself a little bit from it, right? So you're not taking it personally. So if you just think about it, this is a data point, and it's just one point. I got this data point. Okay, now let me re- reflect on it, right? And that's really what design thinking is about.
0: Yeah, you're assessing the current situation. You know, you may have had reasons to do the things you did, but it's a different time now. And so let's assess. Yeah, I like that. That that helps. As far as taking critical feedback, I, I've i talked about this on here before, I think. But one of the things that I've tried to focus on over the last year, maybe year and a half, is if it stings, there's probably truth to it. And there's probably something to learn from it. and I've had plenty of stinging moments personally and professionally over the last year, you know, over my whole career. But I, I've tried every time it happens, if I get mad at somebody or if I feel wronged in some way, or if I get some kind of criticism or my wife tells me, you know, I did something wrong, I, instead of just reacting, I try, I try as much as I can. It's not perfect in it, but I try as much as I can to be like, okay. What about that was true? Like what about my anger is really just me being mad at myself and where do I need to get better? And I there's always something there. There's always something. And it sucks to sit with that feeling. It is just a crummy, crummy feeling. But I think I've just found in my own life and and I would encourage others, like the more you lean into that feeling and just deal with that crumminess and that embarrassment and humiliation or whatever whatever it is you're feeling. And just say, you know, I just try to get to the other side of it, the more you'll be able to hear it as data and the more you'll be able to really be neutral and make changes and then get into the, you know, the the solution, the ideation and the solution phase.
1: It's so true. I think we all can get better at um, giving feedback, receiving feedback and asking for feedback, you know, as HR professionals, as well as leaders or just human beings.
0: Yeah. I just think so many people get hung up on that, you know, that phase that it's important just to address what's going on inside when you're out doing that work. So, you know, we talked about to, I think just to sort of maybe a segue off of this, but still related is you you mentioned it's not about who's right. It's about what's right and that it's people are working differently. They're working more collaboratively. How do you foster the right kind of teamwork going into a design thinking
1: project? Yeah, that's such a great point. And that's why I really highlight in the definition, design thinking is a mindset, a set of mindsets and methods. Because if you just focus on the methods, it won't be sustainable. So what you need to cultivate within yourself, I always recommend start with yourself first. Create some micro habits around these mindsets and design thinking, which are curiosity, empathy, co-creation, creativity, and experimentation. Those are some, you know, right. So, how can you practice it yourself? Then maybe use some little exercises to to do it in a team meeting. Let's say do a little in your next team meeting, do a little ideation activity, and then take it to the next step and maybe integrate it into a project. But There are actually, and I've been thinking about that a lot because I'm actually writing my first book, and it will be about design thinking and human resources. So I'm researching a a lot around culture and mindsets that need to be there to your point to enable this method to take hold and be sustainable in organizations. And, you know, some are around uh, embracing a human-centric, a human experience mindset, creating psychological safety, creating or embracing a problem mindset versus a solution mindset. We talked about that. Embracing experimentation. Those are some of the co-creation. So those are some of the cultural features that need to be there so design thinking can actually mechanically work.
0: I think the mindsets are important. I'm a big fan of priming your mindset for whatever the thing is that you're doing. So what could you run through what those five are again?
1: Yeah. So curiosity, empathy, co-creation, creativity, and experimentation.
0: And how are you setting? So you go into a company, they hire you to come in and, and help on a project. How do you prime that from the beginning? How do you get everybody on the team on the same page?
1: Yeah, and that's, so that's a journey. As a consultant, (laughs) of course, I say this, this is a journey and it depends. So with design thinking, the most impactful is really to do it. So what we like to do is to really give people sort of a taste for the method, really just jump in. So we do either, you know, hackathons, which are short form, like workshop tile, style experiences or design sprints which are five-day experiences on like a project or a challenge they're currently experiencing right so something very tangible and just run them through some of the activities to just get the mindset started and from there my experience is a it's also usually a cross-functional experience and that's the feedback i get oftentimes as well that oh my God, this is the first time I've co-created or worked together with everybody. And and the reason for that is that let's take the onboarding experience, right? The reason is we are not set up in HR to support the onboarding experience end-to-end from an employee perspective. We are set up, siloed. And so everybody knows their little piece in this process, but they don't know even what the others are doing. So this usually creates a huge aha moment. And so you want to create in this initial experience, these moments where these light bulbs go on around co-creation and they actually experience it and they experience the power of it or ideation and, you know, the power of being visual and initially how uncomfortable that is for non-designers. I still remember the first time I ideated when I learned with IDEO and they had the activity activity you know, come up with as many ideas as you can, but draw them. And I was so stunned because I, in my, in my head, the little voice is like, I can't draw. I suck at drawing. And that literally stunned my ideation. I was blocked. And once I sort of realized that I got better, I'm still not a great sketcher, but you don't have to be, you can draw stick figures and things like that. So that's, that's a learning process. And so you want to create these experiences for people. So You know, they unlearn behaviors, they relearn, they reflect, they get uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, and everybody gets uncomfortable in different parts of the process because you have strengths and weaknesses. And through that, you start the learning process. So that's usually how we like to do it in design thinking instead of talking about it. And then once you have...
0: You just teach it while doing it.
1: Correct. And then once people have experienced it, you can go from there and then have a more strategic conversation. And it depends what the the client wants, right? Do they want to build, for example, an employee experience function? Do they just want to build skills and design thinking? I mean, it really, or do they want to redesign a program, uh, a talent program like performance management? So it really depends. Everybody comes from a slightly different angle at this because it is an emerging practice in HR. So there is no one-size-fits-all model Approach. it really depends what people want to accomplish with this and companies want to accomplish with this.
0: Can you just spell out a little bit more the ideation phase? Because you mentioned brainstorming, writing things out, but then you mentioned drawing things. So what are some of the tools that people can use in the ideation phase and and why are they so effective?
1: And so there's actually, I think, over 2,000 methods in design thinking overall. So... (laughs) So and so, I don't even. We know don't how need many, to go into
0: all of them. Yeah, how yeah.
1: many even in ideation alone? So, but I can share. Well, let, let, me,
0: let me ask you a question on that. Yeah. But so before you go into that, I just just one question because on the one hand you could think like, oh, there's 200 methods, and somebody could go, oh, there's no way I can remember 200 methods, so I'm going to check out. But is the point to use the right method, or is the point just to have a lot of options? and find whatever ways work for you to challenge your thinking and get you into a creative space.
1: Exactly. So the method is a way to get to a lot of ideas. Exactly. So it's more around who facilitates it. And the facilitator needs to be knowledgeable about which method to use in this context to get to to the many ideas.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's really just a tool. It's not about, yeah, it's not about knowing all 200. It's just about being able to find one or two that are going to work for you to get people into this mindset
1: correct and so how ideation works there's it's there's methods that help what we call diverge that so you want to go broad and for quantity first and there's a saying in design thinking that goes in order to have one good idea you have to have many first sometimes people ask why do i have to come up with so many we only pick one in the end because and there's cognitive science and neuroscience behind it is if we just come up with a few they're very surface level ideas that are already top of our mind but we have to dig really really deep to get to the best ideas Mm. so you want to go you want to diverge first so have a method where people can come up with a lot of ideas and then you want to converge converge on the best idea and then there's methods like voting and and prioritizing and concept poster creation where then you, you know, converge maybe on the top three and then flesh out the best. So that's sort of the broad structure without getting too much into specific methods, but that's sort of the idea behind ideation.
0: Okay. And then the last part being solutioning and you talked about prototyping is not piloting, that those are not the same. I found that to be a very interesting comment. Could you expand on that?
1: Yeah. So first of all, let's talk about what is prototyping. And so a prototype is, you know, a lifelike facade. That's sometimes how it's designed. A lifelike facade of what the final solution might be. There can be three levels of prototyping: so low fidelity, mid fidelity, high fidelity. So a low fidelity prototype, and we we move from low fidelity to high fidelity and the idea is low fidelity prototypes are very don't have a lot of investment both time and money right so think a low fidelity prototype of a app on a phone could be just a paper cutout and you draw like buttons you know and explain what it is and then you move to more like wireframe designs and then you know real app design as you go along in the prototype but so the idea is to create something or an aspect of your solution that your users can interact with. And that's also the difference to sort of a pilot or just a PowerPoint presentation where you sh- show them and you ask, what do you think, right? It's, 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 it needs to be interactive so they can interact with the solution or the part of the solution and give you feedback or you can also observe what they're doing, where they're stumbling. As they go through it and they can talk you through it and you can observe what they're doing right if they're trying to find a button and they're like wait a minute i don't know where the button is right you can observe that and you want to note that down right and again the goal of prototyping is not to prove yourself right because also you want to find the flaws in your solution early on because as you move to the next level of fidelity you you don't want that to be costly
0: yeah, to your point, there's more investment as you move down, so you want to solve as many problems right. as cheap as possible.
1: Correct, and then when you get to implementation, that's when you can pilot and then roll out. Right, so it's sort of a precursor to a pilot. Now, for an ex- so this is pretty easy to understand for an app or product, right, like a cup or whatever, and an app. It gets a little bit harder to conceptualize when you talk about prototyping a service or an experience, which that in human resources is mostly what we do, right? So there, what you can do, and so in service design, uh, you can use role plays, for example, to sort of create scenarios and interactions and then have people or test, you know, users test the experience by interacting in this sort of role play scenario. So that's, for example, an, an, a way how you can prototype an experience or a service.
0: So would you bring in the people who would actually experience that service and have them test the prototype? Yeah, correct. They'd walk through a very rough mock-up of what that experience would look like?
1: Correct. So for okay. example, I can give you an example. So with one client, we redesigned the new hire's first day experience right? So we brought in as test people, recent new hires. So people who were recently hired. So that experience is still fresh in their minds. And then we brought them sort of in the room so that it was sort of a 30-minute facilitated interview, but they were interacting with actors, right? So one was the manager, one was a buddy, one was the IT guy as they went through the day. And we had to mimic the day, right? Usually it's a full day experience. So how did we show it give a sense of time so we put sort of timestamps on the wall and then also the person they interacted with said now it's 10 a.m right so you have that's like the low fidelity and then also you know they had little name tags where they said i'm your buddy you know so so mimic that a- another thing was that they wanted to give the new higher tour of the building but we couldn't do that in the 30 minutes so they actually printed out the different rooms and put it sort of as a gallery on the wall and walk them through. And so they could react to that and say, well, I would actually add that as a stop, and this shouldn't be a stop, right? So mm-hmm. so I think maybe that helps explain a little bit the interactive nature of it. And so they would walk yeah. through this experience, and there was sort of one person who was not an actor, but they were sort of the guide. So they guided them through and unobtrusively asked sort of mm, prompting questions, right? When they saw the person sort of stumble or I don't know, Grimace, they would like jump in and say, okay, how did that make you feel or whatever? And then we had observers of the rest of the team who would take notes and observe this whole scenario unfold with the different people that were going through the prototype experience.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. I Thank you for that. That, that makes total sense when you explained it, but I was stretching my brain trying to figure out what the difference between the two would be. But I, I like that, that you eventually prototype your way to a pilot.
1: Mm-hmm. Correct. So the next steps for them, then for the client was after that, they had sort of a framework and then I, they actually did pilot it with the next new hire class. And then from there, they refined it. Right. And it actually compressed time to implementation to an eight weeks project, which is also unheard of in HR. Right. So I think that speaks to the benefits, how this process can accelerate accelerate time to implementation
0: yeah well that was that's interesting because that was a question i was going to ask you too i was going to say the opposite actually i was going to say it seems like it's really worth slowing down and taking the time but you're saying that in slowing down you're actually speeding up
1: yeah that's a myth that design thinking takes more time because what it does in essence and i sometimes call it change management 2.0 Because what you do is, yes, by taking a step back, maybe, and bringing others along, you might spend more time up front, but guess what? You save time in the end. You save time pushing things down people's throats they didn't want to, and you save time because you don't have to fix errors in the back end, right? So it's a misconception that design thinking takes more time. It takes more time, maybe, in in the front end, but it saves you time in the back end.
0: How long does it take for somebody to become effective at using these skills, to learn them and and use
1: them? So, I don't know that there's a fast answer to that, but I can share from my own experience. So, I've studied design thinking for the past six years, and I still would consider myself a novice, right? Because there's just so much to learn. But what I tell people is that's okay. You can start at any time. You're not really, I mean, try try it in a small context where maybe where there isn't a lot of risk and then just practice and practice. And then the more comfortable you get, the more confident you get, the more you can apply it in other contexts, right? And you really learn by doing. And so you don't have to become an expert in the method because we are not designers, right? So the key there is really, if there's projects where you can benefit from expert designers, then bring them in on the team. Like, you know, bring in an actual UX designer, bring in an actual app designer if that is what, you know, might be the end product, right? So that, again, speaks to that cross-functional team. You don't have to be the expert in all the aspects of it. You bring the expert in with you on this co-creation journey.
0: Yeah, well, and that's kind of where I was thinking is like, is it, do you always have to have Somebody, some consultant, come in and help you with this, or is it worth the investment in sending a couple of your people, maybe sending one of your HR directors out to IDO or to some other program to really learn this so that they can come back and be the facilitator themselves eventually?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. You can do that. So, what I've seen though is if just like one person or a couple of people are trained. It's really hard to build that as a muscle into the organization. So and that's why I focus more on capability building for the entire HR team to create sort of a core base muscle and language that everybody has. So, for example, just wrapped up a project with a tech company where we went through a six week experience with the entire HR team, I think 20 people. At the end, everybody sort of understood this didn't make them experts by no means, right? But they got a sense for the process, the mindsets, and so on. And then now we're sort of working with them in a coaching fashion. So now when they have projects or questions, they apply it. And if they need, we coach them along the way, right? So they've gotten sort of the impetus and sort of a base understanding. And now they're applying it through coaching you know with a coach right so where they still get feedback and support and things like that and that's a model because i've done and seen multiple things and to me that's a model that seems sustainable because then they're actually building confidence they're applying it to specific you know what does it mean in a talent acquisition like one of them is applying it to a talent acquisition sales uh, project right what does how does it work there right how does it work when we redefine the future of work and things like that? So it makes it real and it also makes it more tangible and less scary.
0: Yeah. And I, I love what you said about giving it a common language because I've had Eric Kershot, one of our mutual friends on the show, talking about his passion for disk assessments. and But we talked about all different kinds of assessments. And one of the things that he said is, you know, it... It matters a little bit about which one you use. And he would argue for disk, but what it really gives you, whichever one you use, is it gives you a common language. And then it allows you to dive into difficult situations or problems and all be talking the same language and just how important that is when you're solving problems. And I think, I think about that a lot with frameworks because, you know, a lot of us, we read a lot, we study a lot, you know, it's easy to be out in the world hearing this person's framework and then that person's framework and somebody else has a totally different framework. And it's not that any one of them is wrong, it's just that it's different ways to approach the problem, kind of like your 200 ways to ideate. Um, and I think it's important for teams to define which frameworks they're gonna use because the frameworks then create the language and then allow you to solve the problem.
1: No, that's a great way to put it. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I, I think about that just in my own life of like, okay, God, I've read all these books, you know, everybody's telling me to do this or that or the other thing. Like, Which are the few key frameworks that I'm actually going to follow? I'm interested in learning others, but which are the key ones that I'm going to follow?
1: And that's actually why I think I like design thinking because I'm a, I'm pragmatic like that too. You know, I I'm of the opinion to use the methods or frameworks that, that work in that context, right? I'm all about impact. But so that's why design thinking I think resonates most than other frameworks with me is that the mindset of of the method, the mindsets are timeless. And the mindsets really bring us back to what's fundamentally important in human resources, and that's the human. And that is a very in a way a very contemporary approach. But for many organizations, unfortunately, a very novel approach. So I think if we bring it back to the human and employee experience, of course, is is trending as a trending term that's closely associated with it. And you just apply and live even just the mindsets and change your behaviors a bit along those mindsets in HR, even that can have an impact. I don't care if you use all these fancy methods. I care... If you shift your mindset to curiosity, empathy, co-creation, creativity, and experimentation.
0: Is that how you would define a, a human experience mindset? Because you mentioned that earlier, and I, that was a question I wrote down that I wanted to ask you is, is how, how do you define that? What is a human experience mindset?
1: It's, it's kind of interesting because one of my taglines is, or my tagline in talent imperative is, let's bring the human back to human resources. And so actually, a a couple of years ago, I I lectured at DePaul to, you know, master's in human resources management students there. And I asked them that question. I asked them, what do you think are the barriers to bringing a human-centered approach to human resources? And they came up with the three Ps. And I'm like, I'm going to, Trademark that what you guys told me so it's kind of interesting because to hear it from students right from that generation and so the three p's they came up with was policy process and profits and if you think about hr historically that's what we what the function was there for and that's why i'm saying we need to bring the human back to human resources and center the human over profits process and policy I know that sounds very radical,
0: but (laughs) I love that. It doesn't sound that radical to me. (laughs) You know, another question that just kind of popped into my head while you were talking about this what have you learned about people in the last six years?
1: That's a great question. What have I learned about people? Wow. I've learned about people that they can surprise you because, again, I came from a mindset, and so I'm, for me, this is, design thinking is a huge practice for me personally because i i'm a recovering workaholic and a recovering perfectionist which are antidotes to design thinking so to me design thinking is almost like balancing those tendencies in a way especially perfectionism and so what i've learned is that people can surprise you if you treat them as adults and i think that is in general maybe what sometimes we don't do with employees right we treat them as children and try to tell them, you know, we hire them because we think they're great, but then we dictate a lot what they should think and do. And I think people surprise you when you treat them as adults.
0: And what does it mean to treat somebody as an adult?
1: Have them become co-creators of work. Because I think sometimes that the tendency has been Either we create policies, but the policies usually are there for the 10% that do something wrong. So it's, you know, flipping that paradigm to let's create something that works for the 90% that do things right. And actually, let's not do it behind closed doors because, you know, unless it's some very sensitive, whatever, right, uh, safety or security or confidential matter, Let's by default co-create with employees and employees uh, and leaders versus create for them, create with them. To me, that is treating them as adults because they can have a say. And, and this new transition to the new way we work is the perfect example. We absolutely need to co-create with them. And we've seen companies who have not done that and not to scare anybody, but then you know, they have become big, big stories in the media right? Because there's no reason why you shouldn't co-create the majority of how and where work gets done with employees. There's no reason. And also, by the way, treating them as adults means, no, not everything what you tell me will get implemented, right? Because we go through the process of, let's figure out what it is, but then it needs to be viable, feasible. You know, we have all these lenses that it needs to go through, and then we might implement aspects of it. But this is the process that we'll go through. And yes, you invite it. No, not everything might get implemented, but we'll tell you why and why not. That is treating people like adults.
0: So if not treating people like adults and and micromanaging is one mistake that you see people making, what are the other common mistakes that you see beginners fall victim to when they say oh we want to use design thinking here
1: i think mistakes it's more the biggest i think thing is building the confidence to do it at all that's what i'm seeing with hr right to just have enough confidence to just try it to just get started to begin with and then the other thing that i've heard because i have my own podcast that's called tell and tales where i interview hr organizations who have um, pioneered design thinking in hr and so the common theme there is also to maybe not, and I always say that, anyways, you know, sometimes it's all about packaging, you know, not to call it design thinking necessarily, right? So, because sometimes that can be seen, you know, maybe received cynically, oh, here comes HR again with a whole new different thing that we need to try, blah, 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 right? And approach it more from like, a, hey, you know, you have this pain point or this problem, why don't we? try this and then you just do something and then people tend to come back and say hey what you did there the other day that was really cool can you do this again they don't need to know it's called design thinking necessarily you can call it co-creation that tends to resonate more with people so that's one thing and then the other thing is are there already parts of your organization maybe in marketing or it or software development where people know design thinking So you could work with those leaders and have that sort of as your pilot project, right? Because it can also be hard to explain to others what that process is. But if they already understand agile methods or design thinking, and you just say, let's apply it to a talent or people challenge, it's usually like a very transfer versus, you know, trying to convince people from scratch. And then again, you build up those wins and those people talk about it, and then that spreads. So that's those are some of the themes that I've heard in my interviews.
0: You know, you said it's not so much that they make mistakes; it's just that they don't get started. They have misconceptions. What what are the misconceptions about design thinking?
1: That's for designers. You know, I'm not creative. I'm not um, a designer. How does it apply to what I do? Right. So those are some of the barriers. So that's why. That's, that's why I dedicate my work to overcoming that. That's why I founded the HR Hackathon Alliance a couple of years ago, which is literally bringing sort of a design thinking light method to the community so they can, get, they can experience it and get inspired to learn more. So it's really this upfront barrier and misconception around my own capability. I'm not creative. And then how does it apply to what I do in HR?
0: You, you've you obviously done this a, a lot with a lot of different clients. Do you have an example maybe of where a group was a little apprehensive and wound up having a great experience and shortening their timeline and like that you could just walk through a, a, a prototype, if you will, of what this might look like?
1: Yeah. One experience was so a client who wanted to build or experiment with employee experience. So they had sort of gone through the process of identifying sort of employee life cycle stages. They called it eight of them. And then we helped them, or we created sort of a prototype of agile HR teams of three of these life cycle stages and ran cross-functional HR teams through, you know, defining the stage from an employee perspective and then ideating solutions around it, right? So and so the first workshop was really that whole empathy and putting yourself in the shoes and looking at your process from the employee's perspective. And so that was that was really hard. So this first workshop should really help shift the mindset from, you know, I work the HRIS to get this person onboarded to, hmm, what is really their end-to-end experience and what are they thinking along the way? And how is what I do impacting you know, the, the hiring manager or things like that, right? And to really shift that mindset from a process to a sort of experience and empathy mindset was really hard for people. But then by the second workshop, they really embraced that. And then in the second workshop, when we got sort of more to the ideation and prototyping, then the initial sort of scary thing was the drawing of ideas right and so overcoming that initial resistance and then creating the concept sort of poster and visualizing it and to me the most so and then we interviewed people at the end because we wanted to understand what they felt as they went through it and some of the stories were like to me the most impactful you know somebody who at the beginning of the first workshop, barely felt they could speak up and had a voice. At the end, they were up on the flip chart, crafting the prototype for everybody, right? And you could just see the personal change and journey and growth within just a few weeks in that person. To me, that that was that's worth everything, right? Yes, the big organizational change and shifts as a strategist, which I am, are always interesting to me, but to see the very personal impact and how that person felt empowered and really had a new love for their job in HR. And, I've, and I hear that a lot from HR people. They finally feel like they're, through this process, given permission to do what they signed up to do when they entered HR. But then, you know, all the other pieces right? They experience all the, all the barriers as they advance through their career and that this is almost liberating them, them again to be human-centered and to really serve the employees. So that to me is the most rewarding when I see that sort of light switch go on and people going through this very personal transformation and mindset and behavior change because that ultimately can be sustained more than any method they might learn.
0: Have you ever taken improv classes
1: no so this is on my list because I should so storytelling is also actually a design thinking sort of practice because all the the phases need to be tied together by visual and verbal storytelling and that's an area I'm personally weak in I think it's because I'm German <laughs> but um, so not we're not a country of storytellers so that's something you know I tend to practice and I think the improv, would be great for that, so that's on my personal bucket list, but yeah, there's a connection between improv and creative creativity, so definitely recommend those two go well together
0: mm-hmm. well, it's just so I took improv A at Second city here in Chicago, which was a fantastic class, and I wish I uh could have kept on going. but as you're talking about what you've seen happen with people where you know they were a little bit shy and by the end they're the one up at the flip chart you know animated that happened almost every day for the whatever it was 8 or 10 weeks that I took this course it was you know you could just see people come out of their shell and it it was a lot you know improv is based on a lot of the principles that you talked about with design thinking it's based on co-creation creativity experimentation empathy and curiosity i mean it's it's all of those are in there And it's funny because, you know, they have different games and tools that they use to get people into an uncomfortable position where it forces your brain to shut off and just be present and in the moment and allow the creativity to come through you. And it's funny that it's, you know, geared towards a totally different outcome, but the process is almost identical, at least from my very limited experience. And I can tell you, from my own personal experience, I would come home and need an hour and a half or two hours to calm down after those. Because, and I, you know, no drinking, no drugs. Like I would just, I, I my brain was so turned on and so keyed up from being in that creative play space that, you know, it, it took a long time to have it rev back down again. And I could see that happening when you get really in, really get into flow with a team doing this kind of work.
1: Yeah, and that's a good point. Actually, there's a lot of um, research around the importance of play at work, which has been shunned, right? The word play and work don't go together and it's kind of poo pooed. But so it's actually a common combination to use design thinking with improv or like Lego series play has become very popular. So even hackathons are so where there's a gamification component are considered play as part of design thinking. So there's a lot of intersection between design thinking and other methods.
0: Yeah. Well, and so much innovation in history has come from accidents. You know, maybe not from play specifically, but it comes from crazy intersections and accidents. And if you're structuring everything, you don't get those happy accidents. You know, you have to create a little chaos, let let ideas collide to really innovate we're coming up on time and i could keep going on this but i won't do that to you what are you sick of talking about when it comes to design thinking
1: when it comes to design thinking not so much i was thinking more about sort of the current environment i mean it is related to design thinking but i've been thinking about you know this whole future work and then the media headlines that really use sort of language that's pitting organizations against employees. So you actually read words like the battle between managers and employees. And and I think that really doesn't serve us. So maybe that's the tie back to design thinking. Because it's not an us versus them. The employees want this. The managers want this. And now we have to go to war. I think it's, I know it's clickbait and it's really... <laughs> I understand why they do it, but it really is doing a disservice because what we should do is come together and co-create and use a design thinking, a human-centered mindset to co-create between all the stakeholders involved, HR, leaders, and employees, what this future of work looks like. So I'm sick of of seeing that pitting against each other, and I would love to see more of a human-centered approach, a co-creation approach to the future of work.
0: So my next question was going to be, what do you think we should be talking more about? But I think you just answered it. Yeah. More of a human-centered <laughs> co-creation uh, approach to work. The last question that I ask most people on the show is what in your mind is the purpose of business?
1: Not to get too political. Because <laughs> I can, think you can get you political can in this Take one.
0: this however you want.
1: But So I grew up uh, in Germany. And so I come from a system of what's, The system is called social capitalism, not to be confused with socialism. And so now I've lived in the US for the past 20 years, which of course we have, but another form of capitalism here. And, you know, as a design thinker, we always look to, you know, where can we get inspiration from? And I think capitalism in the US is out of whack, quite frankly. And I think the purpose of business nowadays needs to be to put profits into changing the world and making the world a better place. And there is sort of models like B Corps and things like that, where more having a a purpose-driven model. And I just think we need a little bit of inspiration from other models and maybe other countries on how we might refresh capitalism in the U.S. I leave it at that.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that that aligns with everything that you've talked about, about making it a more human-centered experience. Well. Nicole, I really appreciate you coming on the show. You know, one thing that I don't want to leave unsaid is that you actually do this for a living. And so if anybody has made it this far and is still really interested in learning more or thinks that this could be helpful for their organization, how do they find you?
1: Yeah, thank you for that. You can find me on LinkedIn, Nicole Desain. And our website is talentimperative.com. Or if you want to get started and join the HR Hackathon Alliance, that would be great too. That's hrhackathonalliance.com.
0: Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom. I think there's a lot to learn. This is a deep rabbit hole that people can go down, but I think it's a fun one and it's an impactful one. So I I hope this encourages people to go out and, and learn more and start to try it.
1: Thank you. And thanks for having me.
0: Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.